for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In It Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. My name is Marshall. It's true. It is. And here we are on a history podcast. We are. On a day that is a big day in history. It is. For the first time in a lifetime for many of us, there is a new monarch in Britain. I heard that when I was at school this morning. Yeah. We're going to have kings on our money for yeah. a while. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. so today is the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II. She was like, what, 96 or something? The longest ruling monarch in British history. Wow. I, I would have a hard time believing that any monarch ruled longer in any country. Right. Yeah. Because she got in young and lived long. She was like 25 or something when she mm-hmm. took the throne. Yeah. I, I've seen the queen. Oh, yeah. With my own eyes, Tim. Well, I'm glad it was not with someone else's. Back That in, would be weird. Back in the day, during one of the royal visits to Canada, she drove through Woodstock. Which is really interesting. A royal visit to Woodstock, well, Ontario. Okay, okay. Let me let me be clear here. I don't think she stopped. Mm-hmm. She just like drove through. I like the way you say she drove through. Okay, she, in a way that because here's what I envision. <laughs> okay, so she was older at that point. Yeah, she was still like she would have been. I don't know in her seventies or eighties at least. Yeah, so I'm just imagining like in a PT cruiser. No, <laughs> it was I think a Rolls Royce. If I'm being honest, there was like a there was like a car there was like a convoy, mm-hmm. and that royal convoy that went through, and the streets were lined with people mm-hmm. and waving, and I saw the queen wave, do her little kind of like the people listening can't see this, but it's the yeah. it's yeah. the side hand wave. It's the right. It's it's the wave that's not a wave, and I don't know why you wouldn't it's just. It's more wave of a twist. It's a, it's a wrist twist. Sure. Anyways, but so I've seen the I saw the queen before she passed. Um, you know, I I don't know where she's at. She was the head of the Anglican Church. It'd be cool if we get to connect with her in eternity. I don't know where her soul's at, but. Uh, you know, praying for her family. It's a loss. You know, she's an old lady. She's nine, you know, 96. That That's what happens to 96-year-olds and 86-year-olds and 76-year-olds. Uh, but, you know, praying that, you know, the family is comforted in their grief. And uh, as a good Canadian citizen, you know, thankful for her and what she offered. I mean, she has no real, she had no real political power, but still offered a sense of unity amongst the Commonwealth, and for that, grateful. Yeah, and you know, that's that's part of what's going to make this so historic. I think so. At the beginning of her reign, and it's interesting, because we are only going to use the word reign, but from the beginning of her reign, the terminology of the British royals has been flipped to reign mm. and not rule. Interesting. Right? In that... She presides over 
the Commonwealth, but has n- no political power. Yeah, I mean, so influence. Yeah, but no authority. So, in Britain, the Queen signs laws into like gives royal assent to laws. Mm-hmm. Her, here in Canada, where we live, her the Governor General, her representative in Canada, right, does provide royal consent. Essentially, I mean, it's it's the democratically elected parliament that mm-hmm. that that makes the decisions, but they get the stamp of approval, the you know the rubber stamp of of the royal family on that, right? And that's where that's where it's going to become interesting because so many people are going to argue too soon. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of that, uh, but the discussion has already begun. Is is this a value add for the British economy, or are the royals state-funded celebrities? Right at this point. Right, right. right. Um, not that they would dethrone the much beloved Elizabeth II. Sure. Not going to have that conversation. Nobody wants to have that conversation. But now that she has passed. And we have now King Charles. Um, it's a very different story with Charles. Right. Because he's a very controversial figure. Sure. Historically. Yeah. Not in the moment, but historically. Yep. He was. Uh, also, I believe, 76. Um, so as these conversations begin to happen, will we, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, uh, see the British monarch come to its end right and say you know what it that rubber stamp on laws that ceremonial figurehead mm-hmm. is not valuable in a modern democracy right i'm not going to make a statement on it one way or the other it's not my country i don't care um but at the same time it is an interesting progress of history yeah and as we look back on these kinds of things sometimes it's worth pausing for the moment to look around you and to look forward hmm. and to see that you're living in the kind of moments that people will eventually write about and reflect on historically. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I grew up in a family where, you know, my grandmother was born in England, uh, lived through the second world in a suburb of London through the second world war. And in my grandparents' home, there was a picture of queen of the queen on the wall. That was just a thing that we got used to growing up. We didn't have it in our own home, mm-hmm. but you know, I would I would say, particularly my my dad's side of the family, the Morton side of the family, were proud of their British heritage, mm-hmm. and so. But as we, you know, as people in general, especially in, in the kind of this this hemisphere, become further and further removed from their cultural and ethnic roots, how important is that anymore? Right. And, and right. that's, that's a thing that, I mean, there's, it's not an easy question to answer. There'd be some people who are listening to this who are saying, oh, the queen's a joke or the, the, not even just the queen. Sorry. That's, that's maybe a little bit raw because then she just passed, but, but the, the royal the family, monarchy. the monarchy in general is just, is a joke. And there's some people saying, no, 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 That's, you know, that's something important. It's a part of our, it's a significant part of our cultural heritage and therefore ought to be honored and remembered for whatever reason. Sure, but even even internally we have a prince and a duchess who have stepped out of the 
Yeah, the well, H- Harry's totally stepped out, right? Mm-hmm. William is still, still... So those conversations are being had within the family. Which is crazy to Which think. is significant, right? Yeah. It, it could, like, can you imagine an internal shift? Like mm-hmm. the family themselves mm-hmm. making the decision. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, fascinating. And in in a weird kind of multiple degrees of separation, not entirely divorced from the conversations that we're going to have today. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. Right. Right. And, and you know, and I think it's interesting, like while you were talking about the, the concept of heritage, um, I think for our Canadian listener and our American listener, because we're just going to decide that there's one of each. Although we know Susan's <laughs> out there in New Zealand. New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. The Kiwi. Holding so, it down for the Kiwis. I love it. So for the American listeners, it's going to be different mm. even even than that, right? Because one thing that I noticed in Canada really early on, people would be like, so what's your heritage? Right. And I would be like, I'm an American. And, and a lot of times, to be honest with you, what happens is a Canadian rolls their eyes at that mm. and they're like, American arrogance, right? Right. You're not actually American. The only way you could say you're ethnically American is if you were like... Lakota or CU. <laughs> but but the difference being right. The difference being my wife is Dutch. Mm. Right? She is a third generation Canadian born, but entirely Dutch. Right. Because here in Canada people pocketed to their communities mm-hmm. and and stayed that way for a very long time and they carry that with them. There's right. a bit of that when settlers first came over to the Americas. Sure. But it doesn't. It doesn't last, right? And and at this point, who's keeping track, right? <laughs> it it doesn't even really it, in America, right? Who's keeping track, right? And the right. answer is very few. Mm-hmm. My mom did the ancestry dot com thing mm-hmm. and found out that she's mostly English. My last name is English. I'm just going to assume that I'm there too, right? Right. right. So that would be mother side and father side. Mostly from England. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that until like a year ago. Right. <laughs> and it doesn't change the way that I live. Interesting. Right? See, and, and maybe it's just my... And I don't want to kind of impose this on on all Canadians, but for me, growing up here, my ancestral heritage was a significant part of my identity. Mm-hmm. Right? So so that, that there is a French-Canadian side. Descended that I found out more recently from the Huguenots, who we talked about a few episodes ago. You know, a lot of Scottish, a lot of English, a lot of Irish, a little bit of Jewish. That was fun. Yeah. Also, kind of, kind of interesting for me. That that was kind of the curveball for me when I did the DNA mm-hmm. thing. Um, but that's much more, yeah, a part of kind of your identity. I think in Canada, in particular, maybe this. I don't know if this is true elsewhere. I'm not sure, but you're kind of, you know, you might be still be, I would consider myself a Canadian first and foremost, mm-hmm. but those other ancestral parts of my heritage are, I would consider a part of my identity that are not critically important, but but a part of who, who I see I am and where, where I understand where I come from, I guess. Yeah, and I, I wonder, because we talked about this religiously and... and Sociopolitically, in the last episode, it mm. could come down to the difference of this being historically supported and populated by loyalists versus the U.S. by rebels. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, I think so. And so there's that break that becomes the cultural expectation. Mm-hmm. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that break. Because well, here's what people are going to say. They're going to be like, you know what? This was supposed to be dropped on Thursday morning. Mm. It's not going to hit till maybe Thursday night. Maybe Friday morning. Maybe Friday morning. <laughs> it's not only you a day late, but you've also made it 12 minutes late. <laughs> Talking sure. about this stuff that's yeah, not yeah. yet history. So let's get to the history of it. Okay. So let me give a bit of historical context that's not necessarily touching directly on the things we're going to talk about. The things we're going to talk about are massive historical things uh, today. But just just for our listeners who are interested, 1776, the Illuminati is founded by Adam, I'm going to go Weishaupt. Okay. In Bavaria. The Illuminati, whether it's still a thing is, you know, obviously a matter of controversy, but it was a thing in 1776. Mm -hmm. It was founded. Uh, 1779, photosynthesis is discovered by Jan Ingenhutz. 1781, the city of Los Angeles is founded by Spanish settlers. In 1783... This one's going to sound rel- relatively familiar. Russia annexes Crimea. It's like history repeating itself. I feel like they've done that multiple times over right. history. Right. Very recently and also somewhat recently and also obviously back to 1783. Uh, 1792, the New York Stock Exchange is founded. So that's, that's going back a ways. 1792, Stock Exchange. I was surprised by that. Um, how they kept track of things. I, 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 you know, that was kind of one of those things that like, it got me thinking like, okay, wait, how did they keep track of what the values were and all? But then I, mm-hmm. like, I can't go down the rabbit hole too far. 1793, Upper Canada, AKA the province of Ontario, <laughs> uh, bans slavery. Okay. Here's a quick thing for our listeners. Upper Canada, although it is generally at least the populated parts are further south than Quebec it's upper canada because it is at a higher topographical range so lower canada is quebec because it's closer to sea level ontario is upper canada just for everyone interesting i didn't know that yeah well there you go so they banned slavery in 1793 hence why we would be the landing point for the underground railroad decades mm-hmm. to come uh and finally the last thing i've got 1799, the Rosetta Stone right. was discovered by Napoleon's troops. Which is incredibly important for the church. S- hugely. Hugely right. important. Right. Uh, some other things. You got, okay, great. This is the period of classical composers. Mm. So the arts, Johann Sebastian Bach, mm-hmm. 1685. Uh, Beethoven, born in 1770. Uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, uh, 1756. Okay. Uh, Vivaldi is a, a part of this era, um, and and others, but those this, are the big ones. Those are the those are the the big the chart toppers. Yeah, yeah. If you're gonna if you were, if you were gonna ask somebody on the street, name a classical composer, right. they're gonna name one of those. That was your top forty. Yeah, essentially. Can you imagine? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like instead of like Justin Bieber and like Selena Gomez, it's just like Bach and Vivaldi. Who's Justin Bieber? Okay, sure, fine. Yeah, you can pretend that you don't know who he is. He's from Stratford. Okay. So today Would that make him the third most listened to person in Stratford? <laughs> behind you and me? 
Oh, if only that were true. Okay. So, we are going to be talking today about revolution. The rev- Viva la revolution. Viva la revolution! Except they didn't say that because they either spoke English or French. Because we're talking about the American Revolution. And also, we're going to talk about the French Revolution a little bit as well. And they're connected. But I don't want to... Yep. I don't want to drop yep. the goods too early. But the American Revolution was first. Mm-hmm. The French Revolution was slightly later, but like sure. a dec- by like a decade. Sure. And here's the thing when we get into the American Revolution. This is this is kind of thing that was like going through my mind. Okay. That was touching my heart a little bit. First off, the fact that you are an American yourself, mm-hmm. American citizen. And that we know for a fact that we have a good number of listeners south of the border in the U.S. Mm-hmm. of A. Um, the American Revolution has been mythologized in yeah. history. Sure. The events, the characters turned into legend. Mm-hmm. And the potential of bursting some bubbles or maybe not painting things with as much of a golden glimmer as people might be used to is something that I'm concerned about doing, but feel that I have to do to some Mm -hmm. degree. Again, we're not going to be getting deep diving into all the political things. We want to talk about church history primarily in the the context of these things that are happening, but there might be some things that, you know, I say as a non-American that might paint the American Revolution as not the greatest, most wonderful thing to have ever happened on the face of the earth. Yeah, but you know what? I'm going to come back at that as an American. I'm okay. going to come back at that um, because your education comes through extension mm-hmm. from the crown. Yeah. Those people who were ousted <laughs> by the rebellion <laughs> and have... Yeah. their own socio-political interest mm. in downplaying and calling these things mythical. So the the tension there mm-hmm. is not less on your side of it right. than on the other side of it. <laughs> Fair enough. Right? And, I, this is, and this is yeah. why studying history is hard. Right. And to be clear, just so people know, and this is and this I would say is actually a tragedy of our current educational system is that actually throughout my education my you know elementary and and secondary education i learned absolutely nothing Mm -hmm. about the american revolution so all that i know are things that i've picked up you know through media through pbs documentaries because we do get those north of the border every once Mm -hmm. in a while and through through study but i'll admit that coming from loyalist backgrounds, there might be the potential to, you know, there might be a bias here. So, like, a full sure. I, I mean, I've I've spoken with people educated in the British system mm-hmm. who would say the American Revolution, like we we basically just walked away from it. It was an expensive endeavor to operate mm-hmm. the colonies, and we walked away from it. Right. I mean, they were. Okay, mm-hmm. We'll have this. Look, we're getting ahead of this conversation. So, in any case. We talked about last week, we talked about the the Great Awakening, which was something that kind of began in Britain, but but really, really had a massive influence on on the American colonies on a spiritual level. Mm -hmm. And and as we look at the reasons for revolution, 
we're 20 minutes in and just starting. As we look for the reason for the revolution, there are there are some there are some political situations that are going to have an impact. Right. And so we can talk about those. But then I want I do after that want to talk a little bit about the spiritual situation and the religious situation mm-hmm. that also may have had an impact as well. And so what was going on in the American colonies and the years leading up to the revolution were a series of laws passed by the British government that impacted colonists in the Americas that hit their pocketbooks, mm-hmm. essentially. This, this, is, this is about tax. Let's mm-hmm. be real here. So the stamp, there was the Stamp Act of 1765, and, and a lot of that was reven- like they, the British government wanted to bring in revenue to kind of pay off their debts mm-hmm. from the Seven-Year War that they fought against the French. So they're like, look. And in their minds, they're like, look, we beat the French. We preserved the colonies. It cost us a bunch of money. So why don't you guys fork out some cash and help us pay for the thing that helped you guys out? Mm-hmm. That's the British perspective, right? Um, they began taxing goods that were imported from Britain. So glass, paint, lead, paper, tea mm-hmm. was a big one, right? Which led to the Boston Tea Party. One of the things that happened economically in the kind of mid to late 1700s, if you were your average Joe American colonist, you were actually living better than your average British citizen. Sure. Um, so the Americans, the American colonists paid less than one twentieth of the taxes of those citizens living in England at the time. The, Brit- the British realized, hey, there's a lot of people living over there. Right. They got a lot of stuff. We got a lot of bills to pay. Maybe let's start charging them some taxes. Problem being, American citizens don't get representation mm-hmm. in British Parliament. Right. No taxation without representation, right? That's that's the thing. So this this thing starts to bubble over, right? So you have this situation where the British are like, hey, you know, we take care of you. It's almost like teenage son living at home. 100%. Drinking all the milk in the fridge and being like, hey, you know what? If you're going to eat all, eat us out of house and home, you got to throw us some a few bills from your McDonald's job. Whatever. Again, it's that's a probably not the best. No, analogy. no, because I would say that there's. It, it's not like it's not like the populating the Americas wasn't self sufficient, mm. right? Mm-hmm. They're built the the American colonies are are farming and creating industry and trade, right? Um, it, it's not like they're just sitting over there and depending upon mm-hmm. the British to feed them yeah and house them right they're yeah. not doing like a whole right the british are giving you land because you need it and giving you housing it wasn't a welfare system no 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 i mean the british would see it as they offered military support against the the native indigenous tribes anyway again <laughs> there's a really good if you if if you go in either direction in the study of this there's a pretty good case on both sides of this question. That's that's the way I mm-hmm. that's the conclusion I came to. Sure. Right? There's a pretty good case for the British to say, no, the Americans they can pay a little bit of tax. They can pay their way. And for the Americans to say, look, if we're not gonna get a seat at the table, 
you know, we're, we're, we're a significant group of people. We're contributing right. to this empire. Like we deserve at least a say mm-hmm. in what, what goes on. Right. So it goes, you have, you have something called the Boston massacre in 1770 massacre is a, um, exaggeration. Mm-hmm. What you had was 200 angry American, uh, workers surrounding a group of seven British soldiers who, once stuff gets started, gets throwing at their head, they start firing their guns, and three people died. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, it, we learned it that way. Yeah, a massacre. It, it, it's a bit of propaganda. It is. <laughs> Let's be real. It is. Yep. But then you get the Boston Tea Party, which is a fun time. <laughs> I love. I I love the story of the Boston Tea Party. I do. I do. I love it because yeah. they get onto these ships. So, so the British are 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 putting significant taxes on the importation of tea because tea is coming from. Well, it's originally coming from all sorts of places to Britain and then to mm-hmm. America, and they're they're putting like a, a a fee on a special tax on it. And so, what these American rebels do is they get onto these boats, they dump a bunch of the tea overboard. Right as in protests, but they're actually very particular about what they do. They broke some locks, and they actually paid. They actually paid for the re, like for the repair or replacement of the locks, and they didn't hurt anybody on the boats. Mm-hmm. It was very specific. It was like right, tea is the thing you're taxing us on, so we're gonna and and that you're you're trying to make a profit on, so we're gonna dump it in the river. What's the value of tea look like now? And so it was just, it's just an interesting thing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying for or against. Yeah, not trying, not trying to also be vandals and things like that, right? Yeah. They're just very specifically like, oh, you want to surcharge us for tea? Let's go Mm -hmm. dump it all in the ocean. Yeah. And these things, it's for the, I'd say the Boston Massacre for the Boston Tea Party, these kinds of things, it's really less about their weight as uh, catastrophic events Mm. and more as symbolic events. Right. Right. Yes. It is. It is a standing up mm-hmm. to an empire. Mm-hmm. Right. That was able to boast that the the sun never sets mm-hmm. on the British Empire. Right. And it didn't. That's incredible. Yeah. Like that is an incredible, true statement. Mm-hmm. And this group is like, I don't know that I want to be a part of that. <laughs> when everybody else was like, no, look at how huge the British Empire is. Right, the colonies are like, it's kind of a small island, and yeah. I, I kind of don't know if their arms long enough to reach over here and sustain it. Yeah. Right. And so these things, it's, it's less about the catastrophe of, oh my goodness, what does this do to the British economy? Right. Now that this two boxes of tea <laughs> fell overboard, uh, and and more to do with the symbolism of, I think we're proving that we don't actually have to do this. Yeah, we don't need you. Right, I think right. that that's the thing is the self sufficiency of the of these colonies saying we can do just fine on our own. Mm-hmm. And I think you know not to skip ahead too far, but that was proven to be true. <laughs> <laughs> I, continues to prove continues to be, true. to be proven to be true. Uh, yeah. So there are there are these flare ups of battles that happen places like Lexington, Concord, whatever. The, the British respond by bombarding certain na- like uh, mm-hmm. coastal towns, so it gets pretty rough. Things things kind of heat up beyond kind of the political posturing and the economic frustration over taxes and and the odd you know a riot and a couple people die. It becomes 
it becomes a lot heavier and hotter. Yeah. And that's when you kind of, things blow up into a full-blown revolution. Right. And we know how that goes. Right. And and this first part, you can very clearly see the two sides, mm. right? You can very clearly see the Americans saying, hey, this thing happened in Boston with the tea and these guys did the thing as that symbolic act of rebellion. Mm. You could also very well see King Charles back in England going, so what? <laughs> it's like, it's a hundred bucks worth of tea right. in today's economy, sure. right? And you're just like, nobody cares, yeah, right? Like, what do you, do you think that's not going to sink us? What are you doing, right? right? Um, and and that, that plays out depending on which side you're sitting on, whether or not it's significant, mm-hmm. right? Because in England, they're just like, we're, we're a, a, an empire, Mm-hmm. We don't care about that. Right. But this is underdog saying, you know what? We stood up. Yeah. And we had we had what might not even be a win, but it's a moral victory. Right. I mean, if you were waiting on some tea, mm-hmm. it wasn't a win. <laughs> You're like, but that was my it's, tea. <laughs> it's not even it's not even that. It's not like the stores are then like no, I the know. shelves are empty, right? I it's know. just a couple of boxes of I it. I know. It's just and, funny. And and so the moral victory for an underdog is a dangerous thing. In yes. sports. Oh, he, when sports huge. when you have someone who is chosen to be the winner of a football game, mm-hmm. you let the underdog hang around too long and get a couple of moral victories, and all of a sudden they forget that they came here to lose. Right. And yeah. that's a dangerous spot to be in mm. because they play like people who have nothing to lose. Right. And that's what happens in the American Revolution. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and there's this interesting thing that happens because we're talking about th- 13 distinct colonies. Mm-hmm. And they are distinct from one another. Yep. And, and it's not until kind of the end of this story that they have this shared common identity, really. Um, and there's this big debate on... Is everybody really going to be on board? There's this big... So a lot of these initial revolutions happen kind of more in the North. And there's this real debate about, is the South going to be on board with us? Right? The South was really dependent upon the English to buy their crops because they're they're growing all sorts of stuff. Way more than they need to consume themselves. So like export to Britain is like, that's that's their economy. And... And they have this weird kind of distrust between North and South that obviously, spoiler alert, is going to kind of manifest itself later on sure. in history. But there's this idea that like, you know, those Yankees, you can't trust them. They're too, they're too kind of into their own thing. They're too self-absorbed. Mm-hmm. And the North looking at the South and be like, oh, you're just, you're lazy and you're whatever. And you're too, you know, whatever. You just like to sit on your, your big porch and sip sweet tea and Because it's hot. <laughs> it is hot. Anyways, but, but there is a unity. There is a unity amongst the colonies. Mm-hmm. But there are some conflicts within the church. Yep. As to how to handle a revolution. Right. Right. Because of what God's word says in a variety of areas, Mm -hmm. what is the most appropriate thing to do as a Christian, as the church, right? Obviously the, the biggest issue is for the Anglicans. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, for the Anglican Church, I mean, literally, the king is the head of their church. Yeah. The king how many, is their pope. How many Anglican churches do you think there are in the States right now? Not many now. They're all Episcopalians, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you're just nodding your head, smiling. Yeah. So there is a divide amongst the. That's where that's where all of our American listeners are like they keep talking about the Anglicans, and I don't know I don't know anybody who's an Anglican. People, these yeah. Anglicans, like we here in Canada, we have one on every street corner, it seems. Um, but yeah, so again, it's the difference between rebellion and a loyalist. I, exactly. Yep. So, but. Initially, amongst the the Anglican Church, the Church of England, there is this divide, right? Because for many of them, they're like, well, we're loyal to the king. Mm -hmm. That's literally like, that's written into the foundational truths of who we are as a denomination. It's like, this started with Henry VIII, right? Like, we are the Church of England. This is an English colony. We're still beholden to the crown, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a big that's a big thing. But we also have to remember the impact of the things that we talked about last week, the great awakening. Right. On this period. We're talking about a generation removed or less in some instances. Yep. And all so many of those come from the separatists and the baptists and the puritans and the quakers and these people who have removed themselves hmm. from the anglican church. Mhm. Principally because of the connection it has politically. Even if you think about it like this way, it's like to be part of the Great Awakening, even if within your, let's say you're a Presbyterian, because the Presbyterians, they're a good example because they were divided on the mm-hmm. Great Awakening. You're a Presbyterian and you're you're taken by this Great Awakening as opposed to those who are not. You're like, I don't care what... The presbytery says, I don't care what my parents' pastor says, I'm listening to George Whitfield and what he's saying makes sense to me and I'm all in. And it's this it's this shedding off of this authority mm-hmm. that you know claim that claims authority because of this ancestry that they have tied back to whatever, you know, further and further back. So you have that within the colonies, a large amount of people whose spiritual identity is in large part defined by a a moving away from this kind of very conservative, very old-fashioned, very hierarchical identity and to something that is more about the individual, the individual experience, the individual faith. And that is really going to lend itself well to calls for rebellion. Right. And, and I think, I think we, we'd be remiss to, to ignore the fact that like religion played a major role in the American revolution. Oftentimes it's kind of, it's pictured nowadays as this very, very secular, very philosophical, political, you know, type of thing. But, but where people were at in their faith and how they understood that where they fit in had a real impact on which side they landed on. Right. I, I think the way it was, it's traditionally painted is to say they leave for religious reasons, religious freedom. They break for po- socioeconomic political reasons. Um, although you, you can't, you can't have one or the other. Yeah. Right. So it, whether or not we've, we've talked about it before, whether or not 
England is ruling in one place or the other, they're still ruling. Sure. Right? Yeah. So there is going to be that level of carryover. Now, I want to be sure that we... I'm going to be the one now to say let's not over-romanticize. When we talk about the religion of the founding fathers Mm. and the amount of religion they bring into it, that does not insist upon being Orthodox Christianity. Not at all. Not at all. I'm not talking about... I'm not talking about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. I'm talking about your average dude Mm -hmm. in the colonial army lining up against the Redcoats. Yeah, and I just want to say... Those dudes are Christians. I I just want to say some of these... (laughs) Some of the big names of the founding fathers and and the revolutionaries get Mm -hmm. painted as the kind of guy who would sit next to you in your Baptist church. And they they weren't. No, there was There was... They were religious. To a degree. Heretically so, right within the church. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson is a great example. Jefferson's of that. Bible is famous. Google mm-hmm. Jefferson's Bible, um, literally edited the Bible so that it would say what he wanted it to say, mm-hmm. and then read it. Talk talk about making a god in your own image. Yeah, that's literally the definition. When we when we talk about people cherry picking or why don't you just rip that page out of your Bible. He physically ripped the page out of his Bible. <laughs> he did. He did. He didn't just ignore it like modern liberals. No, he actually. He, you know what? And maybe to his credit, although I don't, I don't agree with it. At least he did. That. He didn't pretend like he was going to do yeah, it. Yeah, he didn't pretend like he believed the Bible. But if you if you follow sort of his role in an American Revolution, yeah. he's also not the kind of guy who's going to sit on the porch and complain about the government, and not do something about it, right? Yeah. Like he's yeah. He's an action guy. Right. And so he's a, he's an action guy for sure. better and for worse. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. I think that the upper echelon of the revolutionary leaders are, for the most part, not what we would call devout Orthodox Christians. Mm-hmm. Almost, almost to a fault. Right. Right. However, ground level, that's not necessarily the case. It's, it's a bit of a different story, ground level. Yeah. In a lot of the pastors in the colonies are actually framing this whole revolution as 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 a as a righteous thing right as a righteous um overturning of tyranny and and that that is the that is the christian duty i have a quote here actually from an historian they said that by turning colonial resistance into a righteous cause and by crying the message to all ranks in all parts of the colonies Ministers did the work of secular radicalism and did it better, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Which maybe is, a, maybe is a little bit more critical than I would put it. But essentially, the politics in the pulpit, you better believe it's happening in the 1770s, in right. the 13 colonies. That is, that is, that is happening, um, for better or for worse. I mean, again, like I'm, I'm not here to lay, because honestly, honestly— well, maybe I'm getting help. You know what? Let's let's save that conversation for the end. But sorry, sorry. To okay, because I I we don't we didn't prep this, but I think I know where you're going, and I was over here sitting on it, ready to go as well. But if you want to do it at the end, we can <laughs> do it at the end. Let's let's get to let's like. So I think I know what you're going to so say. The different ministers, different pastors, responded in different ways. Mm-hmm. Some served the American Revolutionary cause. In very explicit ways, either as military chaplains, uh, maybe they were they were you know 
because they were literate, <laughs> writing letters and that sort of thing for correspondence. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them served in state legislatures. Some of them, you know, participated in different congresses and different, you know, whether it's national or state. Um, some even took up arms and led continental troops into battle, mm-hmm. right? Because of where they were at. Right. Um, and a lot of, a lot of that fervor actually has to do with the prominent eschatology of the time. And, and some of that still carries over to this day. I've got a, I've got a great, a great quote here by, by a pastor. Eschatology. Being the study of the end times. Exactly. Sorry. Yes. Thank you for that. Yes. Eschatology. For those of you who didn't tune into our our catechism series last year, so this idea that once once this revolution is successfully completed, mm-hmm. that the principal seat of the glorious kingdom which Christ shall erect upon earth in the latter days will be America. So they saw themselves as being the fulfillment of God's kingdom being established in this great empire unlike any other before it, greater than any other, you know, and and that that would be the source of God's message and rule covering the whole earth. Yeah. Some people might hear that. And say that is ridiculous, right? And there's some warrant to that. Oh, it's yeah. There's a lot of warrant to that. Sure, but there's also like, I was reading that and I was like, okay, well, I'm not there, obviously, totally. But I'm like, but at the same time, understand? You know, we're not at the missions. We're not. We're not at the the the, the foreign missions episode yet. We'll mm-hmm. get there, but the. The, the the Christian church in the United States of America is going to play a very significant role, yeah, in and, church history. And, and this is where I, this is where I would say a sprinkling of biblical validity comes into it. Mm. Okay, um, which everyone just rolled their eyes and went like, oh, "I'm American." <laughs> the The issue is this: imagine yourself a Puritan mm. in England, right, and you're under persecution, so you flee to the Netherlands. This is two episodes ago, right? And you're there. That's not working out for you either. And so you take your family on a boat across the ocean, and it looks like you're not going to make it. But through the divine providence of God, you are delivered not to a settlement— Jamestown that you expected, but you land in a different place, uninhabited and without rule. And you look around at the friends with you on the boat and you say, guys, we're going to build a, a new place and we're going to rule it under the laws of God. Mm-hmm. And we're going to establish for ourselves a Christian community, a strictly Christian community, from the government to the economy. This is how we're going to do it, the way that God would have a community to live. Mm. 
and your you raise your kids in that. Your kids come in and England is like we're going to we're going to take this over and we're going to treat you just like you're back on the homeland because you're ours. Mm-hmm. Right? And they're like no because you didn't do a good job there and that's why we came here. Yeah. There was persecution there. There's secularism there. We're trying to create this thing where we have a society that brings honor and glory to God. And you're coming at that. Mm-hmm. So in order to protect this thing that we feel like God has called us to, this experiment that God has called us to, we're going to have to ask you to leave <laughs> in no uncertain terms. Right. When you say it that way, it's not nearly as crazy. No. And that's what was being said. Right. Right? Now, was it that? No. no. I said it last week. I said yeah. it last week. You, you, that experiment doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Because it presumes that your children are born mm-hmm. Christian, and well, yeah, and that's just not the case. Well, and it was also, I mean, th- the main point of friction was really taxes, mm-hmm. right? But but that was framed in a way that was more about religious liberty. Now, now that being said. Not being said, there there is not that there was not a call for religious liberty. There there were various preachers and stuff i have you know there's different different people john witherspoon who was called dr silver spoon by the the loyalists because you know because of his his call for his um for rebellion there was a guy named isaac Bacchus, and uh during the great awakening ended up joining the a baptist church in new england but because his baptist church was illegitimate uh they actually had to pay a tax the the official church. Can you imagine if our church had to pay a tithe to like the Anglican church in town? That that's the situation that he was part mm-hmm. of, right? I, I could see our church being required to pay taxes when others didn't. Right. I I could I can see a but, route to that day. Sure. Um, but not paying it to, to another, those churches. To another church, right? So he didn't like that. Uh, let's just, let's, let's kind of put it lately. He wasn't a fan of that. And so as talk of revolution began, you know, he participated to ensure that this fight for freedom would include religious freedom. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Baptists or other kind of fringe denomination the baptists will not remain a fringe denomination and even by this point they're not really a fringe um but that they're going to enjoy equal freedoms and rights to the more quote-unquote established churches uh, in the colonies there were loyalist clergy there Mm -hmm. were pastors and churches that were not down with revolution um and, and, you know, for various reasons, I imagine, in fact, I'm, I'm sure they go to a passage like Romans 13, as many churches have gone to Romans 13 in our current context, or the mm-hmm. context that we've been going through the last couple of years, in how does the state relate to the church? And people fell then and now on kind of both sides of that fence. Right. Now... The stakes are the stakes as high then as they were now. I mean, certainly history books would frame it as it being a much greater thing then. I mean, it wasn't really about taxes. I mean, that's from my own research. It was like they were being asked to pay instead of a tiny fraction of what British citizens paid a 
greater fraction of what people in England paid. And for that, they're like, let's burn the whole thing down, right? That's maybe a little bit of a... Yeah, I think there's also just an anti-colonialization thing that grows as well, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. Where they're just like, why, why do... Why do we need them making our decisions? Right, right. We're established here. We can do our own thing. Right. And in fact, in fact, we got to realize the British don't sponsor people to come over and establish their towns for them. Right. <laughs> right? People hop a boat yeah. and go and they start something and the British walk in and go, that's nice. I'll take it. Right. It's and in fact, actually, it's interesting because you're going to, you would think at least, mm-hmm. you would get the most kind of anti-establishment type of folks. Oh, yeah. Who are the ones who are going to cross, right? So then now right. you have multiple generations by this point of people who are descended from the most kind of like those who are most against the big, the man, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Who now form the society, and you're asking them to do things they don't want to do. Like, what do you expect? Right. And and what <laughs> happens is this is this is this is offset by maybe about a decade, mm. where you have people coming over and they start establishing themselves. They clear out a plot of land. They've mm-hmm. built themselves a house. They got a nice field going. They got right. a forest going. <laughs> they they got a town. They're doing their thing. And all of a sudden, British show up and they're like, "Hey, remember me? Yeah, it's gonna be here like it was there." Right. And that guy's like, the whole point of us leaving was to get away from you. Right. 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 So, so that's where I'm going to say, yeah, your your education also comes with a bias that says these people just didn't want to pay taxes. Yeah. 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 Right. They institute a tax system immediately. Right. Right. It's not like America's full of people who don't pay taxes. No, it's just they pay, or that they didn't agree with taxes. They pay a tiny fraction. Yeah. Okay. There's fair. there's a whole other mindset yeah, of yeah. what's the point. What's the right. point of letting them mm-hmm. make decisions here right. based on what benefits there? Right. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Thousands of miles and we away. Don't, we don't need you. Mm-hmm. We got here without you. We built all of this without you. Mm-hmm. You're just coming in and claiming what we did. Right. Granted, that's kind of what they did to the Native Americans. <laughs> um, yeah. But they're not having it. Right, right. Fair enough. Yeah. No, I get that. And, I get that. And... There is not a snowball's chance you would have paid those taxes. Oh, me personally? If you personally no. had built your home and property and your family there, Marshall? No, I'm telling you. I said this on a previous episode. If I was living in Boston, I would have been I would have been on that boat dumping that tea. I just I I'm self-aware. Yeah. I, I'm just th- saying don't downplay no, because no, no, I'm not I'm not I <laughs> The red coats come up to your front door and you're saying the right to bear arms. Let's go. You need go. to turn around, bro. Yeah. So okay. So no, I'm I'm not I'm not going to argue that for a moment because I know you're right and you know me well enough that uh, that's true. So in all in all, to, to kind of close off the relationship between the the relationship of the church with the state is that at the at the end of the American Revolution, when they achieve independence, there is kind of this. Freedom of religion, mm-hmm. which is a new thing, right? Freedom of religion in England or in other European countries always had a little asterisk next to it. 
that doesn't really happen in the states. They they actually just kind of let people do their thing, mm-hmm. which is great, and is also going to backfire as we see in a few episodes. Backfire for who? Uh, well, well, not backfire, but you're gonna get you're getting a whole lot of cults, and they're all gonna come from one place. <laughs> <laughs> so, spoiler alert. Uh, yeah. So, but that I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, but in any case. Uh, but that's it. You get the separation of church and state, which for mm-hmm. us as Baptists, that's the wind. That's what I would say going. you that's get the weeds for. and the wheat growing together. You do. You and do. And Jesus has very specific instructions on how to handle that. <laughs> Let it grow. Let them both grow. Yeah, and I'll sort it out and and gather what I gather and burn what I burn. All right, we got to make a public decision. We, Let's just go. Let's just go. You want to go? Okay. We're gonna I, be a long. It's gonna be a long episode. I came expecting we were gonna talk mostly about the French Revolution. Really? Yep. Okay, this guy, okay, everyone, this is your treat for waiting a little extra. Because this episode drops late, we're going to give you some extra content. Is that a treat? We're going to frame <laughs> We're going to frame it that way to justify what we're going to do because we're getting close to an hour and we still got to talk about the French Revolution and the French Revolution is important. It, so, yeah, and, and there's a lot of carryover. Yeah, there's especially f- between the church and the relationship to the revolution. Oh, totally. But first, I, I want to just talk about the French connection okay. between Amer- the American Revolution and what happens in France. Um, so, <laughs> so when the American colonies revolt against the British Empire, nobody is happier than France. <laughs> Heck yes, they are. And the only people who are almost as happy as the French is Spain. Right. So, because, <laughs> so Portugal begins... The sort of world conquering and expedition thing. Right. And it fizzles out a little bit for it does. them. It does. And then Spain, France, and England are just the big three. They are. They are. And and there's this constant competition. Right. And when you look at the Americas, right? The Northeast, those colonies, as British as they can be, still to this day, right? Sure. Everyone in Florida, where I'm from. There's a Mexican restaurant in every corner. Why? It's a ton, ton of Spanish influence coming up from the bottom. Right. The whole west, west of the Mississippi to the Rocky Mountains, all owned by the French. Right. 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 You go down to Enola, and everything is in French. The the Creole that they speak there is a French derivative. Yep. Orleans was a town in France. <laughs> right. Right. And so all although they are competing around the world, mm-hmm. this particular chunk of land is something that everybody wants. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no for sure. So so the Spanish a bit, but especially the French are eager to assist the colonials in their revolution. Um, so they're like, I mean, they're sending people, they're sending guns, they're sending boats, they're sending money, they're sending whatever mm-hmm. they can to be a thorn in the side of the people they hate most in the whole world, which are the English. It's not even so much as they support the American revolution as they just hate the English. Mm-hmm. In fact, I say that confidently. I say they, they, the, the French crown, cause it is a crown at this point, is not interested in liberty for people. No. They just hate English. <laughs> they just hate the English so much. Right. This is <laughs> this is the French would definitely look at the American settlers as 
beneath them. Sure. Imbeciles. Yeah. <laughs> Yet. Yes. <laughs> the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And if it takes you to at least put a dent in what these guys are doing, I'm I'm in. <laughs> But, what, but what's, <laughs> what's interesting, what's interesting, though, among these three, as mm. much time as they spend competing globally, they're all neighbors. Yeah. And they, they don't go to war with each other, really. They're, well, they're, they're, yeah, I mean, Napoleon kind of shakes the whole thing up later, but that's after. Right. But, but just to say, yeah, just yeah, to yeah. say, like, they're, they're fighting, like, over out, there, out there <laughs> when they're just their neighbors. It's like it's like yeah, it's like so you had a, you had a beef with your neighbor, and you're like, you know what? We're gonna get in our cars and we're gonna drive half an hour so, to the next town over, and we're gonna fight there. So it would be like <laughs> it would be like this. It'd be like imagine that that you have like competing companies, mm. but you also happen to be next door neighbors. Mm. And you get up in the morning and you drive to work. And out there in the business world, you're battling it out, corporate sabotage, <laughs> all these kinds of underhanded things, trying to sink the other company right. so that you have the monopoly in the business. And then you come home and you pull into the driveway and you get out of your car and you see, and you're, hey, hi, neighbor. <laughs> Evening, Pierre. Evening, George. Uh, yeah, that's kind of how it would go. Uh, no, that's, uh, that's actually great. But so ironically... Um, so here's the thing, the French, the French monarchy, their mm -hmm. support of the American revolutionaries is going to come back to bite them a little bit. It is. It costs a lot of money. Cause it wasn't just a thorn in their enemy's side. What the French people saw was that, Hey, fighting for independence is a thing and it worked. Yeah, it did. It worked. And and France's support of the American Revolution actually caused them to accumulate a lot of debt. So they, they spent a ton of money trying to help the Americans mm -hmm. beat off the, the British, which then the crown is like, well, how do we pay off our debts? Well, let's just raise taxes on the people. Locally. I know. Fair enough. But that was literally what started the American Revolution. Right. <laughs> right? So they, they raised taxes. And, and a lot of these Frenchmen, I mean, some of them, they, they'd rub shoulders. Literal, literally with the Continental Army. Like shoulder to shoulder, mm -hmm. lining up against the Redcoats, right, in, in America. And they're not just sharing the battlefield. They're sharing ideas and philosophies and all right. sorts of things. And they're going to bring that back. Right, right, and, and, now, and not only is it taxation, it's taxation without representation. Oh, for sure. In the British Parliament, mm -hmm. and the amount of representation that the locals were getting in France, <laughs> paying their taxes <laughs> to their king, it was uh, yeah, it was not a whole lot. It was pretty <laughs> bad. I I would have rather been an American under British rule in the colonies than a French person under the French crown in France. Right. Any day of the week. So there there are there are similarities in that the French people see this go on and it, and it it happens. They win. Yeah. And there's an inspiration. Sure. And the ball gets dropped in France as you pointed out by the monarchy. Mm -hmm. But the ball also gets dropped by the revolutionaries. And the French Revolution is an epic catastrophe 
of humanity. It's brutal. It is a it is a bit of a passing note, I would say, in the average American history mm-hmm. um, yeah. education. While we were fighting our revolution, the French helped us. They got into their own. Americans sent a little bit over there, but not much. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, we end up with a trinket. Um, just off Long Island, old <laughs> knickknack, Lady Liberty. <laughs> yeah, um, which is also a part of the French dead at this point. When I, when I was when I was in grade eight, so I've been thirteen or fourteen years old. I did an exchange trip to France and did a whole semester there, and did a history class mm-hmm. that 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 year happened to be covering the French Revolution blew my mind yeah was the most interesting thing i'd ever learned in history class because unfortunately canadian history classes focus on canadian history which is supremely boring sorry to all of you canadian history buffs but as a canadian our history is super boring um and so it blew my mind i was it was just like i was so dialed into this the drama of it yeah and the tragedy of it and and that's 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 a thing worth saying i i can't say I, I can't say much about some of the ancient rebellions. We have very little on them. Yeah. Other than that, they took place. Right. Spartacus's slave rebellion, but, it happened. We don't know. But right. what we know to have happened mm. in the French Revolution mm-hmm. is, like you said, drama and tragedy, uh, to the point that some of the greatest dramas and tragedy in history, Les Mis. Yeah. Mm. is based out of the tragedy of the French Revolution. Mm. Yeah, folks, if right? you haven't watched the modern the modern movie version, the one with what's-his-face and what's-his-face, I can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The modern one, it's so good. I want to go home and watch it now. Charles Dickens yeah. says it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. Mm. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. Mm. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Mm. Here is where things went tragically wrong in the French Revolution. The, The American Revolution had an identity. Right. This is who we are. This is the goal. Mm-hmm. The French Revolution only identified the enemy, and they only did that loosely. The enemy was a concept, and the concept was rule. Mm-hmm. Right? Which means anarchy is supreme. Mm-hmm. And the issue with anarchy is that anarchy still requires leadership, but it's not having it, right? And so the French, as you mentioned, have spent a lot of money helping out the Americans just because they don't like their neighbor. Right. <laughs> they raise taxes on a people already underrepresented. Yeah. And already struggling financially. Yeah, it was like a feudal system still. In These France. people are yeah. inspired. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a similar ceremonial way, they look across to one particular prison, the Bastille. And they just make the decision, we're going to go let the people out. 
there's some people in there that they want. They got an idea about some hidden stuff going on in there that's going to help them revolt. Mm-hmm. Some ammunitions that they believe are being held there. And this place is heavily guarded. For Americans, this is like the Alcatraz of right. <laughs> of the time. Right. And they're just walking straight into the prison, guns firing, pitchforks. Some people, not even that. Like, mm-hmm. just accounts of just... They're just there. Just going in. Mm-hmm. I'm going in. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to kill me. Mm-hmm. Right? They overtake this prison, and that's the moral victory they needed. Right? That's their Boston Tea Party. Mm-hmm. Right? And from that, things crumble quickly. Yeah. Because anyone with any shape or form of authority or power or wealth is the problem. Right. And so suddenly, I mean, by the end of it, people who were in favor of the revolution are getting their heads chopped off in the guillotine. Right. The the aristocracy, the bourgeoisie. Yeah. It, it, it's just, it, it comes down to the thing. It's sort of like, you have more than I do. You need to die. So you need to die. Yeah. But the thing is, now you might have more than the guy behind you. The right. only The only safe person is the person at the very bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Because if there is a single person under you, and I don't mean by by rule of order, if there's a single person under you economically, mm-hmm. you are subject to their will. Yeah. And and your life. Mm-hmm. And and the guillotine is instant and repeatable and cheap. Mm-hmm. And throwing these things up doesn't even take the whole afternoon. Yeah, and people love it. It's public. It's, it's public a spectacle. It's mob mentality, mm-hmm. right? It's it's like in the states we talk about Salem witch trials. We talked about the Inquisitions, mm-hmm. right? But at least those things, like this, is not to downplay those things. Sure. We've talked about, but at least those things had someone responsible. We're hearing the stories out. Right. Right? This is just, who's next? And someone grabs a guy and says, him. Why? Yeah. Why not? Look at his clothes. They look expensive. <laughs> he looks, you, you made me think of Monty Python. <laughs> she looks like a witch. Right? This is a false nose. Right. Okay. He looks yeah. like bourgeoisie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, he's wearing rags. Yeah, but it's he wasn't always. Mm. Put him up there. Yeah. Right? And... And if you read, like, A Tale of Two Cities, you're probably forced to read it in high school, and so you're like, you should read A Tale of Two Cities again. Mm. You should read it again and just consider the social unrest and how terrifying it would have been at that point to be anyone. Mm -hmm. I'll say anyone in their right mind. Right. Right? There, There are a few characters in A Tale of Two Cities who are just obviously not in their right mind Mm -hmm. and they're super into this whole thing yeah right as the greatest thing that could be Mm -hmm. but some of those characters even die right in the end right that's the thing that's what happens in the french revolution right yeah some of these great proponents of it end up being targeted because they're not revolutionary enough or they said the wrong thing about the wrong person or they're not just they're just not on board enough right and so love freedom enough in, in a lot of the same ways 
the church starts off being for the revolution. Yeah, they do. Right? There yeah, are, there are things there are things the crown is doing that aren't right. And there's the modern saying that escalated quickly. Mm-hmm. This thing escalated quickly. Mm-hmm. Like literally overnight the Bastille changes everything. Mm-hmm. It's like the sun sets. Yeah. On France and doesn't come up for a long time. Yeah. Because because at the outset of the revolution, essentially to be French was to be Catholic. Mm-hmm. That's essentially like that's how it worked, right? If you were Protestant or Jewish, you didn't even have you weren't recognized as a citizen. So so the, the Catholic Church has a lot of influence and power, but they're not happy with how the crown is acting. And and so yeah, like you said, they're 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 relatively in, in favor of this revolution. Um, however, very shortly after things happen, the church becomes a target. Why? Because they have stuff. And because sometimes they tell people what to do. Mm-hmm. Right? So first, it's church property becomes national property. Right? Once once the government's actually toppled, you right. have this assembly, which is sounds a lot more organized than it actually was. Mm-hmm. Um, church property becomes national property. Clerical vows are forbidden. Why? Because you owe your allegiance to the nation. Mm-hmm. Not a nation above God. Nation above everything. That's the French Revolution, right? Lots of property gets seized. They do these quick sales of monasteries and their lands to pay off the debts. And essentially, essentially, they, they end up passing this constitution where... Or again, where the state is in charge of the church. It's almost like what you have in China. Like a lot of people, our listeners might not know this, there are state-sanctioned Christian churches in China. I say Christian with air quotes. Yeah. Where the state writes your sermon, or at least approves your sermon. Approves your sermon, right? And And your songs. And you are primarily loyal to the Communist Party of China over and above all else. And that's what ends up happening in France in the late 1700s. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, right? Um, and obviously, there's issues with the Pope, and there's all these criticisms and all these various things that happen, and you get kind of this division that happens amongst the clergy, those who bend the knee to this new understanding of the state, and those who remain loyal to the Pope. Right. And you know, I mean, neither option's great, really. But that's the that's that's what was happening in France, right? right. Either you bowed the knee to the mob. Or you stand firm with the Pope, who's not great either. So, I mean, but that is that is the religious sit- situation in France in the late 1700s. Right. And, and so they are, they are at a place where they have nothing to do except for form a counter-revolution. Right. And so, so what ends up happening is you have this very small and meager dissolved— group that are sort of like still holding on to traditional rule and and I don't know why you would do that like it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. if I was French royalty or a general in army they'd be like hey I think we should hold our post I'd be like I think I'm I think I'm going to Austria <laughs> right like I'm out of here <laughs> yep but I mean the most epic scene in the tale of two cities is people trying to flee mm-hmm. and being hunted down mm-hmm. right before they could flee. Uh, so there's there's that very fringe, hardly even noticeable group. There is 
chaos in the streets, yeah. the mob mentality of uh, of anarchy, and there is this counter revolution. It's like who are you fighting against, right? Like fighting for some order, but not that order. We don't want to be associated with right, that order because right. th- we we agreed that that order was wrong, and it only then looks like, well, you're fighting for order and suppression of the people. It's not unlike the Catholic Church mm-hmm. to consider themselves that order. Right, sure. Right? And so now they're putting themselves in this place of like, are you trying to reestablish the church as the rule of in, in sort of like a Holy Roman Empire all over again? Right. Because no, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is just a big black smudge a bl- in history. Yeah. It's just a bloody time of nonsense for those for those who look at the scenario in which we live now or things that have happened whatever as being particularly anti-church mm-hmm. in october of 1793 public christian worship in france which had a population of like 40 million people at the time was forbidden all visible signs of Christianity were removed. They removed things like crosses. Church bells were were removed and melted down for their war efforts. All the statues, cemeteries, anything of any religious importance was torn down or seized or destroyed mm-hmm. across this nation that back then had as many people as Canada does today. Um that that is that that's what happened over 200 years ago and so this oftentimes we think of this kind of like anti-christian or even just anti-religious movement as being something that's very new mm-hmm. and very recent it's not it's renewed it's renewed yeah it's renewed because i would say it was far worse then yeah i, I would say it's new to you yeah in your experience, it's new. Yeah. And maybe maybe you don't know anyone from any generation that you can think back to who lived under that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it never was. We have this really nasty habit of taking the past and painting it with these sort of rose-colored glasses of things were better and people understood and God was feared. Right. Um and and now look what's happened. Mm. And I I think for me this is going to go into a bit of a wrap up. Um, you can dig it out of that if you feel like you need to. <laughs> this is this episode to me is particularly interesting mm. for a couple of reasons. We study history, and and are doing this podcast on church history. Because we believe that there's value in history for multiple reasons. Mm. One of them is uh, just general information. It's good to learn and understand. This world is being laid out according to the providence of God for his glory. So it glorifies him to understand what's happening. Yep. Um, Secondly, the faith in our own hearts should be fortified by a better understanding of where 
we came from mm. and how we got to here and to what degree study of God's word and proclamation of God's word and the spread of God's word have brought things to be what they are. Mm. And when people flippantly throw things around like, you know what, I have a question that no one has ever asked before. Or you're all just sheep believing whatever was told to you for the last 2,000 years, but allow me to be the first to say, how do you know that it's true, right? Our, our faith is strengthened by knowing that that's nonsense. Yeah. Like you're, you're claiming, you're projecting your own ignorance on me. Mm-hmm. But really, when you make that statement, you're the ignorant one because you're historically ignorant, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and, and that's not to say ignorant in the pejorative. That's I, I know the scientific mean. measure of a lack of information. Yeah, sure. Uh, thirdly, for, the, for one of the first times, we're going to have to say this is not that long ago. No, not really. We have, we have done episodes that have covered more ground than the gap between this recording and these events. That's true. All right. And it all got thrown into a single episode. I mean, here it is, September. We got a lot to cover between before the end of the year. Sure. So things are gonna the window's gonna start getting tighter. A little bit, yeah. In the ground we're covering. But that hasn't always been the case. This is not that long ago at all. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth noting that and remembering we're not so far removed. And understanding that we're not so far removed does two things for us in my mind. Mm. One, it takes us off of our high horse mm. in a way that causes us to say, that's not an other people's problem way back when, but humanity has civilized beyond that. Mm. Because I think that we believe that's true. I think the average Westerner and 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 European, maybe even spread it beyond that. Sure. I, I think most people... In the first world. I think most people believe that we have civilized beyond these things. Mm. And that's a dangerous assumption. Yeah. Because we've seen these things ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. These people have gone through the Great Awakening. These people have gone through the Age of Enlightenment, mm-hmm. through the Renaissance, mm-hmm. right? There have been these ebbs and flows, and sophistication has come and gone. And so for us to just presume these things could never happen again mm-hmm. is setting ourselves up for disaster. I think, I think you're right. And, and that's where we often say we learn history because history repeats itself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to, but the negative aspects of history will repeat themselves when people become ignorant of them mm-hmm. and fail to learn from them. Yeah. The other thing that I think it causes us to do when we come off of our high horse is it causes us to project into our these happenings into our own circumstances, right? And you made a mention that for the last three years, we've been in a we've been in a really interesting time. That is not a compliment. There, there is an old Chinese proverb, apparently, 
where one way that people would curse an enemy would be to say, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> because peace is boring. Peace is boring. And, and we do, now we have stepped into some really interesting times. Mm-hmm. And these exact same discussions, what is the overstep of the government? Mm-hmm. Do I like what the government's doing? What does the Bible have to say about it? What does the church have to say about it? What is my pastor saying about it? Should my pastor be saying anything about it? All of these things are very much the powder keg of our society right now. Yeah. And it is important for us to look at these things and consider how we live. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I can't speak about the things that happened before the French Revolution. Nothing like the French Revolution, maybe Russia, maybe Russia. the Russian Revolution. With that one note, nothing like the French Revolution has happened since the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that it won't. Mm-hmm. Egypt got really close about 12 years ago. Yeah. Because they did the same thing. They decided they didn't want their leader but they didn't have a solution as to what they wanted. Right. And they overthrew and they ended up with a radical Muslim leadership. Yeah. Because they they only knew what they didn't want mm-hmm. and not what they did want. Yeah. And so I would say first be very careful of that. Yeah. Right? Because, Learn from history in yeah, that. Because the Russians wanted freedom from the Tsar and they got Lenin and then Stalin. Mm-hmm. Who was worse? And the French, they're not going to be free for long. No. Napoleon's right around the corner. Right? Right. They're going to trade a king for an emperor. They didn't want anybody, and they ended up dying to their neighbors. Yeah. Right? They ended up the most oppressive era in all of French history was that era where they were fighting for liberty. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. The worst time to live in France mm-hmm. was when they were fighting for freedom. And and your danger was not from overlords. Your danger was not from the crown or the powers that be. It's from the person who lived next to you. Yeah. And I think I think it goes to say that, that when people try to advance things apart from God, mm-hmm. right? They're saying, we're going to do this thing for the betterment of society in a way that is divorced from our creator— it always gets worse. Yep. Ask the French in the late 1700s. Ask the Russians in the early 1900s. Ask, like, this is what happens. Yep. And I will say, too, life under French monarchy, to live in the colonies under British rule, had nothing in comparison to being a Christian under Roman rule. Mm-hmm. That's true. When... Peter, Paul, and Jesus all taught, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. For everything that is up to you, in every way that you can manage, live at peace with all people, Mm -hmm. and pray for your leaders. Yeah. Right? And and I say this, I, I don't get political. I get hosed for not being political in these times. (laughs) Right. 
<laughs> it doesn't belong in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. I'll do it here. You need to think about that before you start your talk of rebellion mm. with your friends and those people around you in society who have a similar idea of what it means to live in freedom mm-hmm. and what it means to stand up for what's right because you were a Christian first. Right. If you're not, you're not a Christian second. Right. You can't be an American or a Canadian. I, I know that here's what's going to happen. I'm going to, I'm calling out a couple of people. I'm feeling spicy today. Do it. Do it. Let it go. Here's what's going to happen. I, I think most of our listeners are Canadians and they're going to be going, oh, Tim's really giving it to his friends and family south of the border. <laughs> but listen, it's not south. It's not a south of the border problem. Mm-hmm. It's here too. People are angry. I got a guy on my block who's flying a don't tread on me flag. Yeah. I just think historically that's ironic. Sure. But um, <laughs> that's a flag of the American rebellion flying right. in my neighborhood. Right. You're in Canada. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, these, these kinds of notions, we need to weigh them against scripture. Mm-hmm. And we cannot, we cannot take them and explain them away or change them because it doesn't fit with what we want, what we think is right, or what makes us feel safe. Mm. Because they were written in those contexts. We submit ourselves before God. God holds our rulers accountable Mm. for the position that they've been put in. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you. That being said, my professor at Heritage, who I will not name, prayed an imprecatory prayer against Vladimir Putin today. He's a Psalms guy. Mm-hmm. So that was his thing. And not, not, it was just interesting. I'm not, I'm not even like saying for or against, but mm-hmm. the, it's just an interesting, it's complicated, Tim. It's hard. It is. It's harder than just always. The government is right 100%. Oh, no, no, no. No, the government is right. Sorry, sorry. That's, Always we must submit 100% of the time. Okay, but what you said there... Sorry, I know. I was wrong. I was wrong. Is, no, I but it's, go- it's golden. Mm. It's golden because that's what people want to interpret right. as what I said, mm-hmm. and that's not what I said. Right. I made no statement about whether or not they were right economically, mm-hmm. societally, politically, foreign mm. relations. I didn't say anything about them being right or wrong. Sure. Right? Mm. I said whether or not you think they're right or wrong, your first duty is to submit yourself before God yeah. in the way that He has called us to submit ourselves before our leaders. Yes. Yeah. I know. You're looking at they're, me they're, deep into my soul. They're very different things. I know. I just, it's hard. It's hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a, a point, one point of encouragement, one point of encouragement that's connected to what we talked about, just for, for those who are maybe feeling discouraged about the state of our culture around us. Let me, let me just briefly tell you about what happened during the French Revolution. The churches were closed, all of them, converted into warehouses, manufacturing places, stables, Anything that was that had the name of a saint, anything that ha- had a name of a biblical character, was changed. 
to new names, names that had to do with the revolution. Even time itself was changed to get rid of France's Christian past. They didn't get, they didn't have the, the calendar. They threw the calendar out. The years were no longer connected to the you know, relative date of Christ's coming. Instead, they were connected to the French Republic's revolution. The names of the months, the seasons, the days of the week, all of it was changed. All of it to remove the idea of Sunday as a Sabbath or as a day of rest or the Lord's Day or day of worship, whatever. All of it eradicated. They instituted these cults. They replaced, you know, these the, the Christianity with cults of what they called the cult of reason, this new religion that was going to define the French Republic, the cult of reason, worshiping the goddess of reason in the, you know, what was left of these former churches, at least the ones that weren't turned into factories, and it didn't last. Mm-hmm. It didn't last because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. And I, I think that's I think that's important for us. Like that to me is the guiding notion. Because sometimes what we do is we stand as if we are fighting for the cause of God. Mm. Even if it seems to be in contradiction with the message of God. <laughs> right. But we're fighting we're going out of bounds so that we can preserve the message of God. We're going to step a little bit out of bounds so that we can make sure that the things that he's actually given to us are able to carry forward, because if we don't, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Right? This all takes place roughly eight generations ago. That's it. Mm-hmm. Eight generations ago. You know what? Everybody's doing okay. Yeah. We've got a whole new set of problems. Sure. And there have been all kinds of ups and downs. Mm-hmm. But for all the catastrophe of the French Revolution, within two generations, France is a world leader again. Mm-hmm. Right? These, the, these things just are not going to go as badly. They're not as traumatic as we make them out to be. Kingdoms rise and fall. They do. And that might include the quote-unquote kingdoms that we live in. Yep. And that's... That's maybe part of God's will, and it's something we have to be okay with, right? We've seen a queen die recently, a monarch, a symbol of power and worldly authority and all these things, but there's nothing to say that the nation that we live in or the powerhouse to the south of us might not, you know, they might not last forever. Sure, and you know what? But God's word lasts forever right and he will come at some point maybe soon maybe thousands of years from now and when he does all things will be made new and the ups and downs of politics the ups and downs of world history the ups and downs of kingdoms and nations and republics and whatever will be unimportant essentially right and he steers the heart of man (sighs) these things are not outside of his hand, yeah. Either to cause them or to allow them, whichever side you, you want to stand on. Sure. Whichever side you stand on, you're kind of saying the same thing. It's essentially the same. Um. But, but we don't need to react in fear. No fear. And and I think I think sometimes we react 
and we think what we're doing is being bold, but really we're being fearful. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've seen that. We've seen that. We've seen people respond in fear and those calling out those who they think are fearful are just responding to a different brand of fear. Absolutely. If you're still here, it's been a long one. Thanks for listening. (laughs) I really appreciate you guys. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. Mm -hmm. See you next time. See ya.